0: A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. One of the biggest questions surrounding Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Russia's overseas activity more generally is the question of information war and particularly Russia's facility with social media. However... Western countries observing the war in Ukraine might be forgiven for thinking that the Ukrainians are winning that war with their slickly produced videos of President Zelensky and other senior Ukrainians. But that is not the case for people in the global south consuming a very different diet of information about this conflict. To help us understand that and the wider context, I'm delighted to be joined by Carl Miller, who's head of research at El Nino, a social media intelligence firm which helps businesses and governments to detect and respond to disinformation and online manipulation. Carl, welcome.
1: Hi there, Rafa. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, th- thank you for joining us. Carl, um, there's a lot going on in this. And as I said there at the outset, if you're sitting in a, in a Western country, even if you are sympathetic to the Ukrainian uh, side in this conflict, and, and I'm sure most of my listeners are, you're going to conclude that Ukraine is winning the information war. Um, but is it as simple as that?
1: Well, Arthur, there is so much going on here, and of course, I mean, if any, if everyone's experience is anything like mine, you know, sympathy and 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 wrenching heartache for for what's happening in Ukraine is completely unbroken on all of my. Social media feeds. I mean, the, the, there's nothing else. Um, yeah. And and uh, you know, I mean, it, just looking at what surrounds you, um, you wouldn't even think there really is any kind of contest in the information space. That, that in fact, it's already been surrendered, or that victory has already been declared. But but no, of course, that that that, that isn't really what's been going on at all. Um, so I mean, it, 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 I guess like the story really begins in early March when we saw our first very obvious kind of um, pro-invasion influence operation kind of ripple across yeah. Twitter. And kind of digging into that, we began to realise that um, all the columnists and researchers and others that, that had actually at that point begun declaring victory in the information space were, were, were doing so rather too early.
0: So can you uh, r- remind the listeners about that? That was the uh, we stand with Russia or, or how, how, what was the sort of hashtag?
1: Yeah, so it was an attack on Twitter's information curation, really, would be the kind of technical way of describing it. I sounded Russia, I stand with Putin, two pro-invasion hashtags, of course, kind of trended across the world on March 2nd. Uh, it was the day yeah. of the um, UN vote to condemn the invasion. Um, and very, very early on, actually that day and in the, and in the immediate day subsequent to it, um, researchers, um, us but lots of others as well, I began to realize that there were certain kind of patterns in the way in which the uh uh hashtag was being engaged with which implied that in part anyway um there was there was a kind of artificial attempt to get those hashtags to trend.
0: Let's dig into that a bit because this is this is where expertise such as yours is really helpful. How does uh, a hashtag get artificially inflated or projected and and how might a social media researcher attribute that to Russia, just for example?
1: So broadly, the attack uh, was to um, develop a series of clusters of Twitter accounts claiming to be from various parts of the world, uh, which were not real, many of which were set up on the day of the invasion, actually, or or actually on March 2nd. All of which engaged in, in an extremely heavy kind of amplification activity on those hashtags, just retweeting, retweeting, retweeting um, and actually reasonably small number of pro-invasion kind of memetics using those hashtags which, which then got shared. Um, yeah now I, I, I should say just because this is an important caveat on what I've just said. firstly, we can't tell for absolute certain that many of these accounts were f- fake and secondly, we can't tie this directly to the Russian regime. Hmm.
0: But what are the indications at point? Is it merely that it's useful to Russia, or are there other ways in which you can make a sort of estimation that Russia is behind this?
1: Mm. Well, 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 welcome to the kind of weird and shadowy world of influence operations, and it, it, it is it's a strange dynamic, Arthur, that we're, we're going to just be looking at here, where there's this kind of trade craft of online influence, which constantly changes, develops, evolves, and um, including its capacities to camouflage itself. And on, yeah. on the other side of things, you've got um, kind of, I guess, like informational defensive researchers, like us independently, but then also the tech giants, who constantly try and develop their own maths, their own machine learning and heuristics to try and to try and spot it. So broadly speaking, there is a kind of a, a high similarity in the actual tradecraft being used with, with, with previous kind of operations that we know have been uh, at least linked to Russia. I mean, one of the complications here is that actually... It's not necessarily even like directly, say, kind of operatives of, a, of, say, a Russian military or intelligence cell that would even necessarily be behind this. I mean, there's a yep. whole kind of strange web of, of spammers and scammers and, and cyber criminals, you know, who have some kind of patronage relationship sometimes with the Russian state, you know, who can be mobilised and support these kinds of operations. I actually think with this, in this particular case on March 2nd, there's a series of like interlocking operations happening. So. Um, one looks like it's it's set up specifically on March second itself. Um, actually, plenty of the others are India related. Um, you know, which 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 I guess opens the door for us to discuss um, exactly who was being targeted by all of these. But but yeah. they they look like either a commercial or a, uh, a an, an India specific kind of um, cell, IT cell mm. of spam accounts.
0: So that's that's interesting and, and maybe that does lead us sort of into this wider discussion of the global south. But before we go there, I suppose it's um, uh, perhaps taking a little step back. Uh, Russia arguably is a world leader in information warfare and and possibly prior to the invasion of Ukraine. I think a lot of people would say that their efforts are usually very successful. People point to certain controversial political campaigns, whether it's a Trump campaign or whether it's uh, aspects of the the Brexit vote and so on, and and argue that Russia uh, played a role in in trying to project certain messages and so on. Um, What is it about Russia that makes them a leader in this field and, and how do
1: they broadly do it? Well, I, I, I'm not sure, to be honest with you, Arthur, that they, they, they even really are. There's been a, a kind of an extremely strong focus on Russia, the Russian state, Russian-linked organisations doing this kind of operation, which has its legacy all the way back in 2016 in the presidential election of, of Donald Trump. But But actually, you know, the techniques stretch back much longer than that. You can go all the way back to Latin America 10 years before to find many of the innovators of these kinds of things in political campaigns. And probably the the real world leaders at this are, are the people whose campaigns aren't getting exposed. Right. But it certainly has been the most visible organisation and the most researched for this. Um, I, I would I would say partly because it's it's wanton nature. It doesn't really care if it if it gets caught, and and because it's it's one of probably alongside China two kind of big autocratic states that we know um, have deliberately tried to meddle in open information spaces to try and manipulate and form the kind of the world's image of them.
0: Yeah. And so that, that does lead us then to this issue of the role of the global south. Um, as I said in the outset, the picture of the Ukraine war looks rather different depending on where you sit in the world. You mentioned there just now about how India appears to have been a particular player in in a campaign that was in the context of a UN vote. And, and of course, we know that India voted... I'm not going to say in favour of Russia, but in a way that was helpful to Russia on that occasion. So what is the information picture in the major kind of BRICS countries at the moment when it comes to the sort of social media interactions about this conflict?
1: So, so everyone's going to have to indulge me for a second j- as I jump into an extremely brief explanation of research tech here. So I, 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 think, yep. I think I need to explain fine. to everyone why, why I'm making the claim that the Russia was targeted at the Global South. And now, um, if you look at the 10,000 accounts that were most heavily engaged in those hashtags and you take all of their messages they've ever sent, really... Um, and then you tip them into the next generation of model that we have, um, and then you map them. You see there are really specific clusters of accounts that all use the same kind of language in common with each other, and very different from all the rest of it. And and when we then looked at all of those clusters, um, it was astonishingly different from any other campaign that I've I've actually analysed, which which we think is linked to Russia. You know, normally you've got clusters around. And various the various fissures and cracks in Western politics, you know, BLM accounts, all those claiming to be MAGA accounts, those claiming to be yeah. and so on. Here, it was clusters around Hindi using language accounts, Tamil cluster, there was a kind of Pakistan, Afghanistan cluster, there was another one linked to kind of South Africa and Nigeria. Nowhere in this campaign where the account's either pretending to be from the West, nor when you looked at the messaging, addressing the West. This is all about Western hypocrisy, about BRICS solidarity, anti colonialism. Um, so, yeah. after we released that work, a whole um, kind of parade, I suppose, of journalists and researchers from across Africa and Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Singapore, and so on, have all been reaching out to us, essentially saying that the information spaces that they're in and that they've been seen are far more contested than the ones we've seen in the West. So, essentially, they were kind of looking on a, in horror at the Washington Post editorials and at the uh, kind of declarations of victory which, which, which kind of Western researchers and others were making because it, w- it wasn't their experience at all. Um, so I suppose like, that's really where we're at now is, is I think kind of like growing realization that, that because we are not seeing the kinds of mimetics and pro-invasion means which, which exist out there doesn't mean that we're winning. It just means that we're not the targets of these kinds of campaigns.
0: Well, um, you mentioned you know Hindi, Tamil, things targeting South Africa, BRICS countries, and so on. Is it possible from your research to identify where these things have originated
1: yeah so we we always walk this kind of uncertain and weaving line when we do this work around trying to discern what parts of this are inauthentic and which parts are not yeah and i I would say that um. There, there are several things that we can point out. Firstly, the Indian clusters, the vast majority of what these accounts do is simply to retweet others. 80% plus of, 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 of their activity. Now, if you if you continue to watch those accounts, they are now entirely disinterested in the war. They've barely spoken about the war at all. What they have spoken about is now a flashpoint in Indian politics around the Kashmir files, particularly in the film that's been released there. They talk a lot yeah. about either BJP or Tamil Nadu state politics. So yeah. um, our best guess there is that these are either um like four higher kind of spam networks that were simply hired in by whoever ran these campaigns, um, or they're somehow linked to to Indian political groups or someone working for Indian political groups. South Africa, yeah. very, very different Arthur. that there that was largely authentic. So that that's largely a story of um real people in South Africa many of whom I'm sure hold kind of beliefs which were in line with the ones which um, this campaign was pushing, kind of reacting to those hashtags trending and actually jumping on and and, and engaging in them and adding their own messages and thoughts themselves.
0: Right. So going back to the, the Indian model and this kind of spam for hire, what are we talking about here? Are, are these lots of people in the sort of equivalent of a call centre who can tap away and, and, and tweet things? Or, or is it something more automated?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question. I mean, it, it might be either. We certainly know that there are um, kind of organisations actually based in Eastern Europe that, that run tens of thousands, of entirely manually run tens of thousands of accounts with their own, you know, name, linked social media presences, yeah. writing style, series of interest, and so on, which would be very, very hard for us to tell apart from real people. The best guess, and again, this is moving beyond the data now, simply into my own thoughts and kind of speculations to all of this, but we, we often link all of this, this kind of stuff that we're seeing to you know, the rarefied, high-political world of geopolitics, of course, which mm. it interacts with, but this is as much to do with the grubby world of spam as it is anything else. And, and these kinds of services, are essentially to conduct online manipulation, not just on Twitter, but, but across the whole gamut of social media platforms... These are freely available existing in uh, services um, on the light net. You know, I I don't want to give anyone ideas listening to this, but you have to Google buy retweets to simply see how available these services are. So it's not difficult nor expensive for for any state or anyone to kind of do this kind of influence uh, or, or run these kinds of campaigns if they want. Um, so, kind of responding to this, like, is as much about cleaning that world up, I think, as it is, you yeah. know, um, us kind of responding to this as a question of kind of diplomacy or, or kind of, you know, security policy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So this isn't about undercover operations necessarily. It could easily be about sort of
1: uh, commercial regulation. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think even much more so. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think in a in a weird way. And maybe it's always been the case that counterintelligence work kind of dips into kind of much grubbier worlds than we suppose, but probably the, the most immediate kind of response that Western countries can actually do to start to kind of defang some of these techniques and campaigns is, is to try and create liabilities on the companies that are openly offering these kinds of services. Because right now, really, there is, apart from reputationally speaking, perhaps, and some journalistic expose, there's there's really very little risk in in offering a service to kind of wantonly manipulate a social media platform.
0: With that in mind, is there then an argument that uh, Western governments should just be trying a bit harder themselves? I suppose what I'm getting at here is that in the real world, this matters because, for example, uh, the support of India and South Africa in key United Nations engagements or in the wider sort of battle of, of of global rhetoric around Russia's actions would be very significant. So is it for a lack of imagination that Western governments aren't engaging more heavily in this work, or is it that actually the downsides outweigh the upsides?
1: Yeah. I mean, so, Arthur, firstly, it really does matter. Um, and, and, and very new research, actually, that came out, recently was an economist study that took our data and then went went one step further uh, and actually looked at the audiences of this particular campaign and found that um, the kind of general ways in which they were talking about the invasion, including just pro-invasion support, increased subsequent to this campaign. Right. So the campaign worked. Yeah, I mean, it it did work and it trended on Twitter. So, So there's kind of multiple ways, I think, in which this campaign worked but at least kind of uh, kind of preliminarily it looks like it did have real audience impact so we we mustn't think that these kinds of campaigns don't actually bubble through in some probably quite messy way into the things that you're you're talking about you know UN votes or domestic Mm. pressure on political um, uh, office holders and, and, and so on but in terms of responses you know I think there is a kind of instinctive, kind of knee-jerk response here around Western information warfare. That's kind of increasingly being, I, I guess, suggested. I, I, as a as a kind of writer, um, I kind of find um, that idea distressing, if I'm honest with you, because um, th- there is... Information warfare as an idea essentially does drain information of any kind of intrinsic value. Um, I mean, really, mm. the whole point of it is to have ulterior effects to either change people's minds or or keep them the same or get them to do something or stop them from doing something And having kind of in, instrumentalized um, information in that way like I, I really think if you look at it in the broader term like really will drain information of the kind of power and the and the kind of trust and and, and role it has in our cultures something which actually has value in and of itself. Um, you know, for all of us who are writers or researchers or podcasters or anyone that enjoy all those things, we don't want to see inf- all information as simply being manoeuvrings within a, within a theatre of war. Um, so kind of in, in, in the longer term and actually beginning now, you know, the kind of solutions that we need, I think, are about protecting information spaces and actually trying to demilitarise them, really. I don't think we win in the long term by kind of accelerating the militarisation of information.
0: That last point feels like a really important one. And of course, you've got the perspective of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what Russia has done to its own population. With some success, it would seem persuading them that Ukrainians are Nazis, present a threat to Russia, that that in some way Ukraine might not even be a legitimate state at all. Uh, and then, as you said there, the, the, the wider stress that is put on liberal democracy by information warfare, we could pick examples from almost anywhere, but we're recording this a day after the uh, another tragic school shooting in America. You would think that that's something that could simply be understood in the context of a ghastly tragedy, but it is immediately something which is politicised. Um, so what are your recommendations of how we might uh, reduce what appears to be a a sort of fast accelerating car running downhill out of control and it having all kinds of negative effects on liberal democracy
1: right i mean that, that that's a rather arresting metaphor and, and and a good one the idea of this this kind of constantly accelerating kind of juggernaut and that is yeah. the worry is that we're only at the very top of the hill so far yes. um in terms of what this kind of tradecraft can do um yeah. So I, I step 1 um I think is to, to to actually see this not really as a question of disinformation because it,
0: it, in many ways
1: I think that kind of r- rather badly kind of f- phrases or frames the problem. Um we're really talking about a number of bad actors using an illicit tradecraft to influence people. And that might be kind of political extremists, it might be autocratic state operatives, it might be spammers or criminals, but We're not talking about trying to stop all people lying over the internet, which is often how kind of disinformation policy or kind of platform guidelines can be framed. And I think that kind of bites off rather too much of online life, really, to to let us do much. Um, Yeah. We we desperately need to widen the array of responses to this kind of tradecraft beyond platform takedown and digital literacy campaigns and journalistic expose, which is kind of the the three things that, 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 have, that have been used so far, none of which really pose much of a kind of real risk to the people who do these kinds of campaigns. Um, certainly not enough risk to either deter them or to kind of lessen their frequency. So, you know, let's throw law at this, you know, consumer rights legislation, um, defamation law. You know, I mean, actually, the BBC also did a follow up on our study and they found people whose photos were being stolen and used to be the faces of pro-Russian propagandists. I mean, there might be legal recourse in that kind of identity theft in some case, but but, but definitely the law. Um, Informational activists could kind of like for want of a better word kind of get more up in the face of some of the people that do this you know there's places where they congregate and where they plan you know and there should be people in a way um kind of peacefully blockading or 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 protesting in those places you know to try and kind of drain them of their of their utility or importance and this sounds kind of strange for someone like me to say you know i don't i don't work for the the British state at all, but, but I cyber offensive operations, I think like could actually also be used against some of the kind of criminal architecture, which is being used to run this. I mean, we, I, I've given everyone like a little glimpse, you know, into this world, you know, where there's kind mm. of armies of, of, of kind of full rent accounts, you know, which, um, sit as an asset for a company and, and, and are used yeah. for all kinds of things, you know, we can go after that, you know, and we should yeah. dismantle that.
0: In a way though, what you're talking about, uh, feels, um, it, it feels rather diffuse, uh, and maybe that's how it should be. But I suppose there's, there's a part of this where if we were to take Facebook and Twitter uh, you know, as two sort of giants of, of social media, it always feels as if uh, they only take action after someone else has pointed out the problem. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't seem to be governments that are pointing out the problems, it seems to be, be people like you private citizens, activists, researchers, but effectively civil society. Why can't governments just be much firmer, and of course, this isn't about free speech, but about regulating uh, the platforms that exist, just as they firmly regulate you know broadcast news in certain countries or you know firmly regulate water quality and, and other things?
1: Mm. Yeah, it's a brilliant question. I mean, just on the platforms. Very briefly, Arthur, I would say that there is that there's a kind of some kind of struggle internally which happens within each of these tech giants. Um, yeah, they tend to be kind of in two halves. On the one hand, you have trust and safety and health, platform integrity. Um, they're often people we work with directly, and and there are in there, you know, people that genuinely keenly feel these problems and are doing their best. Um, but the problem is that they kind of do run up against a bunch of incentives a platforms have around revenue and growth. Um, you know, and, and that's not just finding bots and clearing them off, which is, I think, how it's often understood, you know, which obviously reduces the user base. But it's also the way the platforms are designed. You know, you, you, friction is super important. And, and getting rid of it is very, very important if you want platforms to grow. Uh, and but that's also very, very exploitable. Um, the reason that governments aren't firmer, I, I honestly think, is to do with the framing of this issue as being one of disinformation. So Mm. if you think that, you know, disinformation is really what we need to then kind of legislate or regulate to to remove, that's being faced now. So we've got the online safety bill coming through, uh, you know, which which is going to be placing regulatory burdens on platforms for um, their role in online harms. Um, Disinformation isn't really part of that at the moment. I think partly because it's so unbelievably difficult to kind of exactly define it and then know what kind of laws you can pass that won't kind of have these like vast... Chilling effects on yeah. society, societal conversations writ large, like you know, heretical scientific beliefs. Um, yeah. You know, and I know, I know the Royal Society and others. You know, are, are very, very worried about um, you know not diminishing the capacity for scientists to propose ideas which which are which are distinctly different. Um, yeah. So moving beyond disinformation, and instead, I think probably framing this as being one of the kind of activities of certain sophisticated, coordinated groups, and trying to respond to them specifically is, is what I would do next.
0: So it's about sort of focusing on the bad actors rather than on the the kind of the messages and arguments. Exactly. We're sort of coming towards the end of our time, but I want to take this back to. Uh, the Russia and sort of Ukraine aspect of this whole story. Um, we started at the outset looking at the ways in which Russia apparently, but obviously, as you said, organically and, and with, with in some cases sort of genuine support in the global south, has succeeded in certainly promoting uh, you know, some aspects of its, of its messages. Um, and I touched on this idea of, of how the Russian population appears to have bought into, or certainly a large portion of the Russian population has bought into the Russian government's uh, rhetoric. But what what is the appropriate uh, action for Western governments to take with relation to the Ru- Russian population,
1: if any? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, information freedom operations is completely legitimate in these circumstances, in my opinion. I mean, this isn't kind of information warfare per se. I mean, I, I don't think it's necessary. I don't think we need to kind of necessarily kind of bombard uh, the kind of watching Russian public with, you know, Western government-sponsored strategic communications. I simply think we need, and this is not, we in terms of civic society as well as, as, well as Western governments need to just yeah. try and support ways for Russian citizens just to access all the information that already exists. You know, let them use Wikipedia for God's sake. You know, yeah. like we don't need to recreate Wikipedia. You know, there's plenty of journalists and others creating perfectly legitimate, you know, and uh, and accurate de- depictions of this war and what the Russian government and and military is doing. We just need to help Russian citizens, firstly, break through the kind of blockades which their government have imposed, and then to help other Russian citizens um, to to help those that, that that don't want to do it themselves.
0: Yeah. And at the heart of all of this is this question of trust. And it does seem that social media has a very destructive effect on trust. Is that true? Is there a sort of, are there kind of scientific or even, um, you know, physiological reasons why that should be the case? Or or is that just, um, you know, something that is easy to say? It's sort of one of those, well, the world's going to hell in a handcart statements, but it doesn't really have any any legitimacy to it.
1: Trust as a as a kind of a thing, um, it, we're increasingly seeing probably alongside attention as being the kind of most important territory in a in information warfare. Um, yeah. As always, I I think it is you know it it is easy too easy for us to propose kind of mono explanatory reasons why society is changing in complex ways, and we do point for it to information warfare for for why trust is being drained, and for sure trust is targeted, trust in certain professions, political groups. Yeah. That is targeted, but there are the much broader, bigger seismic, tectonic reasons I think are for why, why why trust is being is moving in the way that it is. You know, which have nothing to do with information warfare. That that's really one of the the, the real aspects of it is that um, like polarization actually would be another. You know, it seeks to exploit already existing cleavages, crevices, weaknesses in society. It, it, it's, it's not, I don't think, great at creating new opinions or, or, or new societal phenomena, but it's very good at exploiting the, the ones that already exist. And is it unreasonable
0: to expect, particularly politicians, but also commercially driven media organisations, uh, not to seek to benefit from that? It would be very easy for me to say, well, you shouldn't do that, that's naughty but if if somebody's commercial and professional success is immediately enhanced by it is is it unreasonable to expect them not to do it
1: that's right and 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 here there is a kind of muddiness between what we would consider to be perfectly legitimate forms of campaigning you know social media advertising and pr yeah. and this kind of tradecraft i've just been talking about and it's not always clear to me exactly when that line is crossed i mean I tend to try and see it as you know. There's a difference in like trying actually manipulating online spaces um, as distinct from from simply campaigning within them. Um, yes, I think it's not unreasonable to, to to ask you know all the journalists and political figures which which do campaign online simply not to do so in ways which are manipulative or, or, or kind of in a, a way offends the kind of dignity of their audiences. So so messaging is fine, but, you know, manipulating the way that search engines work or the way that social media platforms create information to make your point of view more visible than your opponents, you know, in ways which have nothing to do with the audience, have nothing to do with their free will, that's not okay. There's something to do, there's something at the heart of all of this, I think, about about free will and audience choice and really how um, the the techniques I'm talking about, they they actually remove that, they don't really recognise it. Um, the way they form messages um, and the way they then propagate them are all about compulsion. They're not about um, persuasion.
0: That feels like a great place to stop this uh, wide-ranging discussion. It's fascinating and challenging. There are no easy answers, but I think you've helped us with our understanding. So, Carl, thank you very much for talking to me.
1: Thanks, Arthur. Thanks, everyone. Lovely to chat.
0: We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app, Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.